Take your Bibles, let's go to the book of Colossians, chapter number 1. Colossians, chapter number 1, <clears throat> and um, we'll begin in verse number 24 this morning, and uh, we'll read down through the end of the chapter here today. We have a lot of moving parts going on this morning with our service. Um, we have our Start Here class going on right now um, in the uh, teen room, and they're meeting over there, Pastor Caleb is teaching that, and then we're getting ready to leave uh, for camp tomorrow, and uh, we're also welcoming the Danks into church for the first Sunday this morning. They're with us, and so we're excited about that, and we'll mention that to you in a little bit. Uh, we're going to reserve some time at the end <coughs> to ask you to join us in prayer for our teens that are going to camp, and uh, so we're going to uh, bring them up on the stage and have prayer with them, and so we'll do that at the end of service today, And but excited about opening the Word of God together in Colossians chapter number 1. Last week, we looked at all three words, uh, the fullness, reconciled, and if. And we talked about being the fullness of Godhead bodily. We talked about being reconciled to God by the work of Jesus. And then we talked about if we continue in the faith and the importance of those three words. And so we're going to pick up in verse number 24. And you can read with me there. I'll read verse 24 through the end of the chapter. You follow along if you would. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden from ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Father, we ask you that one more time this morning to add your blessing to the reading of the Word of God. Father, I ask you that you would give me clarity of thought this morning as we open the text together. Lord, we stand in need of you to do a work in us, and Lord, we cannot do the work without you. And Lord, we ask you to do that work now, and it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask all these things. Amen. Paul transitions here in this text from the word we of describing where he's at and his ministry to the word I. And he goes into a very personal conversation, and, and for the purpose of this, I feel like this is going to be a rather personal uh, sermon for myself as well. Paul is talking about his personal ministry. He begins to speak of his ministry, not exclusively his apostolic ministry, though I think that's in the scope of what's being discussed here, but he's also talking about his preaching and teaching ministry. And I think that is evidenced by the fact that we end this chapter with the idea of warning and teaching, which is what he's talking about. He's talking about warning and teaching everyone that he may bring them into maturity, that they would grow up into Christ. And then, of course, he talks about the laboring and the struggle that he has. The word in verse number uh, 1 of chapter 2, look what he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those of Laodicea. This word struggle is to <clears throat> agonize over. It's to, 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 to wrestle in your soul about. He has this heavy burden for them to know Christ, to be formed in Christ, to be informed of good, solid doctrine. This is what he desires and he wants to see unfold. <clears throat> you know, I think of 
preaching being so important and the teaching and preaching of God's word is so very important. You know, when I, when I think of my own personal testimony, and I don't share that often, but <clears throat> preaching has been just a part of my world all growing up. At the age of 12, I surrendered to preach. And uh, 12 years old, I mean, I was barely tying my shoe. And uh, it was, I was just a little guy. But I remember very clearly being in the service and there being a call for men who would give themselves to gospel ministry. And, and I thought I was a man, so I'm like, oh, I guess he's talking to me, so I'm going to go. And so I left my seat and went down front. And no doubt I was the shortest person standing in the front of that auditorium that night. And, uh, but I stood there and I said, God, if this is what you want, this is what I'll do. And I, I didn't, I grew up in, around preaching. I grew up around my dad being a pastor. And so <clears throat> I, I thought for a lot of years that ministry was just stacking folding chairs and uh, putting folding tables away. Um, and by the way, that's a lot of ministry. So, um, but you know, I, I didn't know what it really entailed, but I wasn't under any delusions that it was some kind of thing of grandeur either. But if that's what God wanted me to do, I was going to do it. And then when I got to be about 17 years old, 16, 17, I began to kind of uh, rebel in my heart against the idea and uh, statements like, well, it was kind of an emotional decision I made as a kid. And I, I would have my pastor and other mentors come along and say things like, Mike, uh, you're going to make a good preacher someday. And I'm like, no, nah, not me. I'm not going to go do that. And I began to run from God's call to do that. I was 17 years of age, and I went to Bible camp, and it was summer camp. It was on a Tuesday, and the pastor got up, and he preached uh, about the, the donkey that Jesus rode in on the day of the triumphant entry, and he said they found this donkey in the place where two ways met. I don't know if he was faithful to the text. I don't know if what he, had, what he preached on that night had anything to do with that passage of Scripture or not, but I did know that I was standing in a place where two, two ways met, and my heart was grieved and I went back to my dorm room that night, and I laid there on my bed, just me and the Lord. And I remember just coming to a place and saying, Lord, whatever you want, if this is what you want, I'll, be, I'll preach. And uh, I remember getting up and going talking to my uncle, and God confirmed it in my heart that night that uh, this is what God called me to do. And from the time I was 17 on, I never looked back. And God called me into that. I knew it was what God wanted me to do. And there's something that burns inside of me when it comes to preaching. I, I love to preach the Word of God. I love to make it known to God's people. And I want to unpack it in a faithful way. And, and this is a desire in me. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, I desire it. And as a matter of fact, in, in uh, this text, it's almost embarrassingly personal. The way he's laying these words out. I toil. I struggle. And he's laying these words out in this way. But Paul is wanting them to understand the burden that he's carrying for gospel ministry. I, I said in the first service, <clears throat> there's two kinds of preaching that stir me to want to preach. <clears throat> Anytime I hear these kinds of preaching, I always get excited and I want to preach after they get done. The first is when I hear somebody that's good at preaching, then I really want to get up and preach. I'm like, man, that's good. Give me a shot at it. I want, I want to take that same text and go preach it again. And then when I hear bad preaching, I want to preach. Um, <clears throat> So when I hear a guy that just handles it well and he just, just, you know, just lays it out, I get excited about that and like, let me have a turn. And then when I hear a guy get up and he seemed to can't find his way out of a wet paper bag, I'm like, give me a turn at that. I still want to go at it. And, uh, and so I, I, I'm challenged by this. And Paul is writing this same thing. Paul is going to leave the we behind for a moment and he's going to use the word I. 
Paul has explained his ministry and the role and authority that he's been given. This is somewhat rare for Paul, but necessary for the church to see and to read that Paul is struggling. And he talks in these terms of power that was given to him, roles uh, as, as a steward of the gospel. The message was the gospel. The goal is that Christ would be formed in people. And Paul is talking about his struggle. He's talking about his stewardship. He's talking about all of these things. So as we moved into verse 24 this morning, uh, let's organize our thoughts around three words, and I don't think we'll get to all three this morning, we'll get to the first two, but the three words I want you to see in the text we've read is first off, suffering, Paul talks about suffering, and then he talks about stewardship, and then he talks about secrets, and the word secrets is not in the text, it's actually mystery, but mystery doesn't start with an S, and so I chose secrets, okay? Um, So... We have those three words that we lay out in front of us this morning. We see the suffering, the stewardship, and the secrets. First off, the suffering. Look what Paul says in verse number 24. He said, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. He said, I'm suffering on your behalf. He's suffering for the church as a whole. He's doing a work that he could fill up this suffering. Now notice the word here. He said, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now when we read that, it probably gives us a little bit of pause, like hold on a second. I thought we just got done preaching how that Christ was supreme and sufficient and he wasn't lacking anything. And now we're saying that Christ's affliction is lacking something. And we're going to lay this out for us in just a moment here as we walk through the text. But the first thing I want you to see about suffering is he is not suffering for suffering's sake. This is not someone that is seeking out suffering. Paul wasn't running around asking people, hey, can you beat me with a whip? Because I want to suffer for Jesus. He wasn't, you know, throwing himself into the ocean intentionally so he could suffer for the cause of Christ. He didn't lock himself up. He's saying, but suffering comes. And by the way, there's nothing spiritual in and of suffering. In and of suffering itself doesn't make us more spiritual. The reality is lost men and women suffer today just like Christians suffer today. We all go through suffering. Um, we all have people that rub us the wrong way. We all have people who oppose us. We all have people at work that give us a hard time. Everybody goes through suffering. Lost and saved alike face cancer and face loss of loved ones. Everybody suffers. And he's not saying that we ought to be looking for suffering, but he is saying that we can rejoice in our suffering, and that's what sets the suffering of a Christian apart is that in suffering, we as believers, in the middle of our heartache, in the middle of our sickness, we can rejoice. And this is what Paul says he's doing. So there's no value in seeking suffering. And that's going to come into play when we get into the next chapter as well, because we're not looking to just punish the body to make us more spiritual. You're not going to take a vow of poverty or a vow of starvation and somehow or another have spiritual enlightenment. Our enlightenment that we have spiritually comes through the Spirit of God that lives in us through the Word of God that we hold in our hands. And we're not looking to push ourselves into some kind of uh, existential experience that we find God in, but no, we find God in the pages of Scripture and the Spirit that is illuminating those pages. And so Paul says, though, that this suffering is coming. Paul says, I'm suffering for the sake of the church. Not only the church, big C, but the little C church, Paul is laboring and suffering for both groups of people. When we think of the big C church, what are we talking about? We're talking about all those that have been called by the name of Jesus Christ into the person of Jesus Christ. They've been called to him, and now they are marching through time and eternity as all the redeemed saints of God that one day we will see 
uh, clearly revealed in that last day when we're all brought together before him in his throne room. That's the church as a whole. But also there is a practical application of the big C church, and that is the local church, the individual assemblies that gather for the glory of God. Paul said, I'm suffering for both. Now, we see Paul suffering on the grand scale and on the small scale. And remember, when Paul is writing these words, he's writing them from prison. Paul, at the very moment he's penning these words, he's sitting in a prison cell, and he's saying, I rejoice that I'm suffering. And, and we could almost say it this way. He said, I rejoice that I get to suffer for you, for your sake. I rejoice that I get to go through this for your sake, that you could understand the riches that God has poured out and the glory that God has intended for you. Paul is excited about that. I rejoice, not for the suffering, but in the presence of suffering. And it is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that gives our suffering purpose. It's in his death, burial, and resurrection that now our suffering has purpose. You understand that everybody suffers, but not everybody sees that their suffering is advancing the kingdom of God. And now our suffering is advancing the kingdom of God. Paul sees his suffering as continued opposition to Christ. And as such, he is able to partner with Christ in the suffering of his church. Jesus suffered, so will we, some more than others, but we get to partner with him. And that's what Paul is saying when he talks about filling up the suffering of Christ. What he's talking about, he's not talking about the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but he's talking about the ministerial suffering that Christ went through and that Christ's work is continuing today. So any persecution against the church is a persecution against the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? As he's going down that road, the light shines on him and knocks him to the ground. He's blinded and he cannot see. And the voice comes from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul had given himself over to the execution and imprisonment of those who were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he was confronted, he was confronted for persecuting Jesus. And when the church suffers, it is the suffering of Christ continued. Why should we be expected to do less than our master? If our Lord was hated by this world, we'll be hated by this world. And that suffering is the suffering of Christ being filled up, that there is a testimony that is being accrued, there is a witness that is being accrued against this world, that the sufferings of Christ will be completed when the church is taken out. And it will be a testimony against this lost world of the countless thousands of martyrs who have died to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even today, in places around the world, men and women are suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ. And Christ is continuing to be persecuted today in that work. And Paul saw himself as a part of that work. And, and so this way, W.H. Uh, Griffith Thomas helps us with this. This is not Christ's atoning work that Paul is talking about, uh, but his ministerial labor that Paul is talking about. And here's what Thomas says to us. He says, but after the atonement had been made, there was still suffering to be endured for the establishment of the church. And wherever the apostles went, they suffered as they preached, and as they suffered, they preached the more earnestly. Thus, it is that our filling up of the suffering of Christ is not done on a hill called Calvary. Rather, it is done on the long road which began at the empty tomb and stretched through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and reaches to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And this is the suffering of Christ that is being filling up. As the gospel is being spread, as light goes into the darkness, the Bible says the darkness couldn't comprehend it early in John, and then he says the darkness hated the light later on. And this is what happens with the gospel message. So Paul is going through this suffering. You know, when we understand that every life has suffering, and that now through the cross our suffering has purpose, we can rejoice in the presence of suffering. Not necessarily rejoicing for the suffering, but in the moment of suffering, I can rejoice that God is not going to leave my suffering without purpose. That it has a purpose and God is accomplishing something through the suffering that we face. Paul saw his suffering as a fellowship with Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10, he said, he said this, he said that we may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Now, I think we can get to the place in our thinking on suffering that somehow or another we see the big things is from God, but the little nuisances in the middle of the day are not from God. Let me make something very clear. God is the God of the details of your day. God is the God of the everyday moments. God is the God of that person that sits next to you at work and annoys you all day long. God is the God of the person you go home to that annoys you all night long. God is the God of all of those circumstances and details, and God hasn't left us without purpose even in those sufferings. Whether it be a hangnail or it be cancer, God is still God. And that suffering ought to point us to his glory and his goodness, not to how sorry we should feel for ourselves. That in the midst of those heartaches, yes, in heavy heartaches that come, but in the midst of that suffering, we can rejoice. Who else can give God glory and really joy in the loss of a loved one? Who has that? And the Bible doesn't say that we don't sorrow, but we sorrow not as others which have no hope. Because we can have rejoicing in the midst of suffering because we know that our suffering is conforming us to the image of Christ and propagating the gospel to others. This is what suffering does. Paul speaks of persecution and struggle with the church. He talks of a, a struggle with the church around him, and he talks about persecution and the persecution that comes. And make no mistake, the church is still being persecuted today, and there may come even more so in our culture in the West as we see the church being pressed in and gospel message being opposed. And I, I would say to you, say, Pastor, what are we going to do if that happens? And I, I, I find often we can get nervous about that. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to do what Jesus told us to do. Take no thought what you will say in that day. I'll give you what to say in that day. All we need to do is stay faithful in the present to do what God's called us to do in the moment, and God will give us grace for the day of trial, and we can trust God to give us grace in that day. You see, I think a lot of times if we're not careful, we can spend our time worrying about what we're going to do when persecution comes and then failing to do what we should be doing now. I mean, you think about, and I've said this to you before, but could you imagine the Supreme Court got up tomorrow and they said, we're calling a special session of the Supreme Court. We have now outlawed anybody owning a Bible. You have to turn them all in. Do you imagine the outrage? I mean, it would be incredible outrage across the country tomorrow. I know for a fact where I grew up that every redneck would have Bibles duct taped to their car, <laughs> driving through the street, honking their horn, saying, you ain't taking my Bible. I know that's the case. There would be blogs launched tomorrow. There would be podcasts launched. There would be protests. And this, you're taking my Bible. 
And I would like to say to all those people that would be outraged by it, if you want to do your country a service, you would do far better than just reading your Bible tomorrow, than protesting the government taking it away from you. Amen. Daniel. Daniel was praying three times a day. Three times a day he knelt and faced toward Jerusalem. And the Bible says that they, they said, well, we can't find anything to get Daniel on except his, his faith. And so they, they called out uh, the king and had him make a law that you can't pray to another god. And you know the story. And, and then they went and waited for Daniel. And I kind of picture in those yahoos kind of waiting underneath his window. And sure enough, at the time of day, his window's open and Daniel began to pray. And I love the phrase. And Daniel prayed as he did aforetime. Just like he always had, he has prayed. And church, here's what we want to do. We want to be living in a way today that when persecution comes, we keep doing what we've done as we did aforetime. We keep preaching Jesus, keep moving forward. So Paul was suffering the persecution, yes, but he was also struggling with the church. And, and, and look at this wording here again in chapter number 2. We read it earlier, but chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. I want you to know. Personally, I, have, I know nothing of persecution. I've very little of anything of persecution. I've been on evangelism campaigns where I've had the police called on me, and, and mostly it's just, hey, you know, can you calm it down a little bit of time? I was out street preaching one time. I didn't share this at the 9 o'clock, so this is free. I was street preaching one time. If you've never been street preaching, that's an experience in and of itself, all right? But I was street preaching. I was standing in a bus station, and I was, I was laying the gospel of Jesus Christ and eloquence out for everybody to hear. And there was a lady on the, on the pay phone. I'll explain what pay phones are later. But, um, but there was a lady on a pay phone across the way. She's talking on the phone. And I'm, I'm just, I'm as loud as I can be, and I got a big mouth anyway, and I'm preaching away. And that lady, poor lady, she dropped her phone on. She goes, would you shut up? I'm on the phone. <laughs> you talk about a response in church. That, that's a response while you're preaching. So, but I've never really known what it is to face persecution. I've had some opposition at times, but I don't know what it is to be beaten. I don't know what it is to be thrown in prison for my faith. But I can identify with Paul when he talks about his struggle for the people of the church. And Paul makes this statement here in verse number one. He said, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And I have to confess that I, I, I would say just the opposite. I don't want you to know what kind of struggle I have for you. And I've often felt like, well, I shouldn't communicate that. But I'm convicted as I read this that no, I'm supposed to communicate that there is a burden inside of me to want to see Christ formed in you. And there is an agonizing over it. When I watch our young people and I, I see them make decisions and walking away from the things of God, it grieves my soul. When I see God's people struggle uh, with discouragement and doubt and fear, it grieves my soul. And I want to agonize over you in prayer and agonize with you in discipleship because there is a great burden to see Christ formed in you, to see Christ raised up in you. And there is an agony that goes in our soul. And I think I can make a great mistake by trying to say, no, there's no struggle here. Oh, no, there's a struggle. 
there is a struggle of ministry that ought to be the case. And by the way, I don't carry that struggle along, and Paul is not carrying this struggle along. As a matter of fact, let's just go there real quick in chapter number 4 of Colossians. Look what he says in verse number 12 of chapter 4. We read it this morning in the opening. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Man, we don't know much about Epaphras, but I have to say Epaphras is struggling with Paul. It's the same word that Paul uses in chapter number 2 when he says, I'm struggling he said, I'm agonizing over this with you. And he said, hey, Epaphras, I believe possibly Epaphras was one of the pastors at the church at Colossae. And he's saying, hey, Epaphras is one of those guys who's struggling in prayer with you. And this burden that he carries, and he agonizes with them. Why do we agonize? We agonize to see that Christ may be formed in believers. That they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would truly be settled in down. One of the greatest griefs of my heart is to think someone sitting in this room could walk out of here after been in this church for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and spending eternity separated from God because they never grasped the gospel. And I have to be reminded on a regular basis that that's not up to me. That that's up to God. But I am still called and want to be faithfully agonizing over the work that God is doing. Paul says stewardship. It's the second word. And that's the only word we're going to get to after we looked at suffering. Now we look at stewardship. Look what he says in verse number 25. He said, he said, I've become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This was the end. He wanted the word of God to be clearly known, but he says, I, I need to start where I, it all starts with me. He said, this is a stewardship, not an ownership. We don't use the word stewardship much in our modern vernacular, but maybe if we could put it in the line of you're going on vacation and you ask somebody to sit with your house. And you pay somebody to sit with the house, and what are you doing? You're giving them a stewardship of your possessions. You're giving them a caretaker place. And God, Paul is saying, hey, I've been made a stewardship of this ministry. I've been given a ministry that is a stewardship. I'm not the author of it. I'm not the owner of it, but I have a stewardship of it. You know, if you gave the keys to your house to somebody to watch and bring the mail in and to check on the pets and what are the plants and, and whatever you're doing with that stewardship, can you imagine that person, you know, you, you gave the key and you show up to that the house a day early and they're sitting in your living room they got all your food spread out on the on the coffee table and they're drinking your pop and eating your food and they've gotten in the deep freezer and gotten stuff out of there and, and they're just having a time and they're renting movies on your on your Amazon Prime account and just having a time in your house and you're like what in the world are you doing you know like yeah I, you know they got some paint out and they're repainting the wall that now you've overstepped your stewardship you don't have the room to go in and do that you're caretaking of it. See, the gospel didn't originate with the church. The gospel didn't originate with Paul. Paul was given the gospel. He was given the ministry, and he was told to care for it. And Paul is carrying out this stewardship. It was from God. God chose Paul to do his work, so enemies could not unchoose Paul. I think this is one of the most frustrating things to a lost world about God-called men that are called to do a work is that they can't do anything about it. I mean, you think about those that are preaching the gospel through the centuries and governments and authorities have tried to press them down and tried to imprison them and tried to stop them. 
And it seems that every time they press them down, the gospel goes further. I think you think of a man named John Bunyan. You may know that name. You've ever heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress, the most published Christian work other than the Bible in the history of the printing press. And Pilgrim's Progress has gone all over the world, and yet it was written in prison by a man who was prison, uh, in prison because he wouldn't take a license to preach. He said, I don't need a license to preach. I have a license to preach. And he didn't take his license, and he, and he refused to do so, and they said, we're going to shut you up. And they put him in prison, and his book has been to more people. It's gone around the world, and Paul says this, yes, I am bound, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God continues to go forward with boldness. This is what Paul was talking about. He said, I've been given a stewardship from God for you that you may fully know the word of God. We understand that we can have real boldness as a preacher of the gospel because of this. Now, as a pastor and as your pastor, there is a measure of boldness that I need to have even with you. And the reality is that most people here this morning say amen to the preaching that happens here behind the church, but make something very clear. I'm not interested in polling the church to find out what they want to hear on a weekly basis. I'm more interested in getting on my knees and finding out from heaven what we need from God's word on a weekly basis. I'm not going to put my finger to the wind and ask the church what it wants. We're not called to do that. I'm called to preach the word of God and let it be as it is before the people of God. And you say, well, pastor, how, how is that going to work? I mean, aren't pastors supposed to be accountable? And let me make this very clear because I, I want it to be understood clearly. What a pastor does at, or preaches is not above accountability, but it's not for sale either. And those, those two distinctions have to be constantly held in tension, that there is accountability, but it's not for sale. It's not up for debate on a weekly basis of we're going to do this or that. Well, pastor, here's the felt need we have. We feel like you're being too hard over here or being too light over here. Here's the thing. Let's preach the word of God and let the word of God speak to the people of God. Because I believe that's the case. You say, well, pastor, I, I just feel like, and, I, and, and let me just stop for just a moment here. Whether that's a conservative argument or a liberal argument, I'm not interested in finding out what the church wants more of. I'm interested in what the scripture says and proclaiming that. And letting the word of God be fully known among the people of God. And folks, this is why it's so important that we, though we have an accountability and a relationship to one another, that we're not for sale. And the work of God in the life of Pastor Caleb and now Brother Dylan's here with us now. And the ministry that God's called these men to do in our church. That we are accountable to the one who gave us a stewardship. And we stand before him boldly. You know, we, we have the, the, the old phrase that churches would say, well, the pastor, man, he's tiptoeing through the tithers this morning. Tiptoeing through the tithers. You know what that means? That means being very kind in case the tithers get upset with him. You don't want to be too hard because somebody who's given money might leave. And uh, one of the things I've done, I, on a rare occasion, I have asked uh, if somebody in, in a leadership position was giving but I've never asked what anybody gives, and I don't look. I don't want to know what you give. I don't know what you contribute or don't contribute to the church. Why? Because there'd be a temptation to somebody who's contributing in the heart of a pastor who is, is a sinner as well to say, oh, I don't want to say that because I'll offend them. 
Well, if they're wrong, let them get offended. And you say, well, I can say whatever I want to about that guy because he's not giving anything anyway. Now, that's, both of those are wrong. Both of those are out of line. There ought to be a willingness and a boldness just to say, here's the truth, church. Here's where we stand. And we do so prayerfully with a humble heart. You see, when the church calls a minister, they are saying amen to what God has done and to whom God has given a stewardship. That's what we're saying amen to. And we're saying, here we go. Let's labor for the cause of Christ. And let me say this. Don't ever get the idea that the pastor is separate from the life of the church. I think this is a great mistake. That we see, well, the pastors are up there and the church is down here. The only reason we have a pulpit is so that we can see the word of God and hear the word of God proclaimed. This is for lifting up the scripture, not for lifting up the man who proclaims it. And I I challenge us to understand that your pastor needs your prayer. He needs the community of this body of believers. He needs men who come around and hold me accountable and pray with me and text and call. Thank God for the men of our church that do just that. We are not on a separate plane. Pastor Caleb's not on a separate plane. Let me, let me say this to you. I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for my family. I want you to pray for my children. God, keep them holy. God, Guard them and protect them. Pray for Pastor Caleb. Pray for Naomi. Pray for Brayden. Pray that God would hold their marriage together and strengthen. Pray that God would protect them and God would hold them up and God would expose them and make them into his image. Pray for Dylan and Sarah and their new family. They're beginning now. Pray that God would protect and hold them up and strengthen them and understand that we are a part of the life of the church, not separate from the life of the church. Truly, I've been given a different role been given a different role, and my role is to weekly stand here before you and proclaim the word of God that would be fully known, but that doesn't make me better than anybody here, or unneeding of the life of the church than anybody here. God, give us an accountability in this. You see, this stewardship was from God, not from men, not from a hierarchy of leaders, but a God-called man. And this morning, let me just say to those uh, that may be under the sound of my voice that you feel like God may be calling you into a ministry, or for anyone that might hear this message in, in future days, if you feel God has called you, then get along with God and make that calling sure. This is not for uncalled men. This was God called of what God had given Paul a stewardship. And, and Spurgeon, and when I get to this point, I think Spurgeon helps us, and Martin Lloyd-Jones helps me as well on this. Here's what Jones and Spurgeon had to say. Nothing, this, nothing but this overwhelming sense of being called and of compulsion should ever lead anyone to preach. Don't do it unless you're called, he's saying. We must go on to something deeper here. He said there should also be a sense of constraint. This is surely the most crucial test. It means you have the feeling that you can do nothing else. Spurgeon said this, I believe uh, if you can do anything else, do it. If you can stay out of the ministry, stay out. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the full-time ministry of burning and agonizing over the spiritual welfare of others. He's challenging in this role. And I would challenge us all on this role this morning that we not take it lightly. Paul says he became a minister. 
Now I want you to see the two things he's a minister of. He's a minister of the gospel, and he's a minister of the church. You can do your homework and look at it here, but the gospel is in verse 23. We saw it last week. He said, I've become a minister of the gospel. And then in verse number 25, he said, I became a minister of the church. So which one is it? Are you a minister of the gospel or a minister of the church? And the issue is that both. And by the way, I don't think you can separate the two of those ministries out. I believe a, a gospel ministry will lead us to a church ministry. It will always be inside the context of a church. Here's the thing. The church is the only thing that Christ has left as an institution for the propagation of the gospel. I'm for every rock in, Amer in America and the world today that has Jesus painted on it. But Jesus didn't commission people to paint rocks. He commissioned people to feed the church and to raise up the church. And let the church be the propagation of the gospel into the nations around the world. We've leaned into that in our missions program, that we would support missionaries that are about planting churches and building up churches for the gospel ministry and the different realms of the world. And I want to continue to lean in that. I want to lean in that in our own ministry, that we be pouring into the life of the church. I believe the greatest witness of the gospel in Shelby Township is a healthy, vibrant church that is proclaiming Jesus Christ. See, what do we mean by this gospel church context? You see, the church didn't produce the gospel. The gospel produced the church. It is the gospel that gives life to the church. But now that the church has been given life, it is the church that proclaims the gospel. And as the gospel goes out of the church, guess what happens? Churches are given life to. And then what happens? Those churches proclaim the gospel. And the message continues to move along. And it's through the church that God does his gospel ministry. I often say, well, the people, Pastor, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Let, let me put into words what you're saying if I can, and I'll be slightly uncharitable as I do so. So just hang on. I love Jesus, but I don't want accountability. We need the accountability of God's people around us. We need the accountability of being connected with God's people and a commitment to God's people. This is what God intended. Became a minister. He was not, he was not this God changed him. Jesus changed him. He's not separate from the gospel. We don't separate the gospel and the church. The church is not an optional part of God's plan. The gospel produces the church, and the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. It continues to propagate it. So then what was Paul's role? He said, this is given to me for you to make fully known the word of God. He said, I want to make it fully known. Ministry is always a who. Boldness is about who sent me, not who I am. This was the burning in Paul's heart to make known the word of God fully to the people of God. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5, 24. He says, feed the flock of God. He said, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Paul goes further in Timothy, he said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the quick and the dead, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time will come when people endure, will not endure sound teaching, will have itching ears and have accumulated for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
And the fact is we have a, a society today that runs to what they want to hear. And we run into false doctrine and myths that appease the flesh. He said, Pastor, what are you supposed to do about that? Uh, let me tell you what we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to do what we've always done. That is preach the word. And let the word be preached. And let the chips fall where they may as we proclaim the word of God. God chose the foolishness of preaching. It was his plan, not ours. It was his power, not ours. And what is the purpose of it all? To make the word of God fully known. And this is where Roberts helps me most. What do we mean by making the word of God fully known? To fulfill or to give the full scope to the word of God. To give it its full scope. To show the connection of all scripture together. Of not preaching the Bible out of a context, but preaching the Bible in the context of the whole meta narrative of scripture. That what God has been doing is showing his glory throughout all the ages and throughout eternity. And he's doing so through the redemption of men. And this is the purpose that he's laid out from all time. And that's what Paul is going to say when we get to the secret next week. What's the secret? He said, well, it's not really a secret. It's already been made known. And then he's going to unfold it. What is it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the work he's doing. So this is where we stand this morning. May God give us grace to stand there faithfully and humbly. Would you pray with me? Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we find on these pages. Father, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. Father, give us boldness. And Lord, may that boldness not be because of us. Father, may we have boldness, not arrogance. May we have humility, not weakness. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us to walk this. And only through your spirit can we do so faithfully. And we'll praise you for what you're doing already in our midst. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Piano plays and we'll sing together.